Let's stand now for the reading of God's Word. We're in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. And I'll be reading from verse 13. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So again, we see the name, the same tap, tactic, the same, very same tactic by the people in response to the word of the Lord. A cynical question, another one of those unbelieving questions. The prophet announces that the people have been arrogant. And we've seen their arrogance all throughout this book, this letter, with those questioning responses. And here again, what have we spoken against you? God gives them this answer. He gives them this answer, and this is the one thing we'll focus on this morning. What have we spoken against you? To that, God says, it is, they have said, it is vain to serve God. That's what the people had been saying. It's vain to serve God. I wonder, I wonder if Adoniram Judson, you may have read a biography of this great missionary to Burma, thought that after he had gone to Burma, buried one of his children, saw two wives die, didn't hold a public worship service for four years, didn't see his first convert until seven years into his work there, didn't see the second convert till many more years after that. I wonder during those years of Bible translation and sickness, persistent sickness, if he thought, ever thought it's vain to serve God. Or think of Jonathan Edwards, who was an unbelievable intellect and an important writer during the controversies of the 18th century um, American church. He went to work with his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, in Northampton, Massachusetts, and after he became the senior pastor, he witnessed what he thought were revivals in the town of Northampton, but he also had a different view of who should be allowed to come to the Lord's table than his, his beloved grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. Edward's view was much more orthodox, it was much more scriptural, and eventually it became the issue that led to him getting booted out of the church. From Northampton, he was sent to a small Indian um, mission outpost called Stockbridge. So from rising star to outcast backwoods pastor and missionary to a few Indians. Do you think that he may have been tempted to think it's vain to serve God? People through the ages have had a hard time accepting the cross of the Christian life. Right? Many of, of Jesus' first disciples fell away when he taught them about his body and his blood. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the, 
And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, not to put too fine a point on it, right? Let's ratchet it up a level. You have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, it says, do you remember what it says here? Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And then... John 6.66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. His disciples, those who were following him, withdrew when he spoke about eating his body and drinking his blood. It appears those disciples determined that it was unprofitable, that it was vain to serve God. So they went their own way. They decided to serve a different master. They decided to go a different way. It'd be vain to serve a guy who tells us to drink his blood. I think many pastors go through seasons when they don't see much fruit in their own lives, let alone in the lives of Uh, the people that God has called them to shepherd after years and years of plowing ground, week after week, preaching the word from the pulpit, month after month, right, pleading with people day and night with tears, and more people determined to leave the church than yield to the exhortation. And the pastor begins to think that that statement, that the fields are white for harvest and that workers must be raised up, He begins to doubt that and that he has been raised up there, but there has been so little fruit. And his thought may turn to that unbelieving and terrible statement, it's just vain to serve God. It's vain. Think of John Calvin in Geneva. The last thing he desired to do was to take on that city of Geneva and bring reformation there. The last thing he really wanted to do was get his hands dirty in pastoral ministry. He wanted to be a scholar. He was headed to the city of Strasbourg to to write books. But Guillaume Ferrell interceded and called imprecations down on his academic work. 
if he didn't stay and help pastor that city. And Calvin, Calvin, in an extraordinary act of humility, accepted Pharaoh's words as that of God's and heard them as God's will. So after a bit of time, um, he, he does stay, but after a bit of time, a um, few years, the, the, the people and the magistrates of Geneva kicked him out of town, did not appreciate the work that they were trying to do. And then three years later, while, while Calvin's been off in Strasbourg living the life, right? He's a, he's a pastor to a small refugee church of French people. He's writing books. He's writing on the Lord's table in worship. Well, three years later, the magistrates of Geneva beg Calvin to come back and lead the Reformation there. Upon receiving that letter begging him to come back to Geneva, Calvin said, I would rather submit to death a hundred times than to that cross of Geneva on which one had to perish daily a thousand times over. I imagine he was tempted to think it's vain to serve God. It's vain. It's empty. But Calvin went on to write after... Uh, to write this after expressing his difficulty going back to Geneva, right after thinking that thought, I'd rather die a thousand times or a hundred times, he says, but when I remember that I am not my own, I offer up my heart presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. Each morning, Calvin prayed this prayer. My God, my Father and Preserver, who of your goodness has watched over me during the past night, And brought me to this day, grant also that I may spend it wholly in the worship and service of your most holy deity. Let me not think or say or do a single thing which tends not to your service and submission to your will. That thus all my actions may aim at your glory and the salvation of my brethren while they are taught by my example to serve you. And as you are giving light to this world for the purposes of external Life by the rays of the sun, so enlighten my mind by the effulgence of your spirit that he may guide me in the way of your righteousness. To whatever purpose I apply my mind, may the end which I ever purpose to myself be your honor and service. May I expect all happiness from your grace and goodness only. Let me not attempt anything whatever that is not pleasing to you. Add more and more to the gifts of your grace until I wholly admire your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we justly regard as the true Son, shining constantly in our minds. In order to my obtaining of you these great and manifold blessings, forget and out of your infinite mercy forgive my offenses." As you have promised that you will do to those who call upon you in sincerity, amen. Then, of course, there are examples in Scripture that are not so inspiring. You think of Jonah. Jonah, who certainly thought that it was vain to serve God. Not only did he think that it was vain, but he, he, being a self-centered cynic of the first order, didn't like the fact that his service would be a means for God to exercise his mercy and forgiveness toward a people like the Ninevites. Here's what we read in Jonah. 
when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But, and here's Jonah, here's the prophet, here's, prophets are meant to go to places and warn the people to turn away from the coming wrath of God, and you would imagine that the prophet being used that way would be happy to see people running from the wrath of God and turning toward him. But here's what Jonah said, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. He's just seen the mercy of God poured out on an entire city of Nineveh. And he now wants God to kill him. And the Lord said, do you have reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant. And it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. I mean, he's like a little child, isn't he? And the Lord said, you, have, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? And boom, the book ends. So Jonah goes beyond thinking that is simply vain or ineffective to serve God, but thinks that serving God is actually counterproductive, that it's bad. He thought Nineveh had it coming. And he would not be satisfied until God punished them and destroyed that godless city. But regardless, Jonah did not want to do the work of God, and to that extent, he thought that the work of God was vain. Dear brothers and sisters, do you ever have thoughts that it is vain to serve God? Before you deny it, let me prod your consciences a bit. Do you ever think along these lines, I've been serving God for years And he repays me for my service to him with a chronic illness, Crohn's disease, MS, nerve pain, dementia, 
stillbirth, miscarriage. And you say, you know, at the, the darkest part of the night, you say it really seems to be vain to serve God. I've been serving God for years and years, and my finances are all in shambles. He never seems to allow me to make ends meet. It is vain to serve God. I've been serving God for years and years, and not a single person I've ever witnessed to has come to faith. In fact, all the friends I've witnessed to have just stopped being my friends. I've lost all the friends that I've shared Christ with. It's vain to serve God. I've shared the gospel with my parents, and their only response is that I'm a radical, nut-job Jesus freak. It's vain to serve God. I've tried to, to be meek in the face of insults, and I've tried to be zealous in the face of blasphemies. And it all seems to just blow up in my face. It never goes according to the stories of Scripture. Right? It's vain to serve God. I've worked in the church for years. I've tried to be faithful to practice church discipline and preach faithfully, but the church does not grow, and there always seems to be a large heaping of discontentment from the congregation. It's vain to serve God. I've poured myself into my children's education, centering all that education on on that instruction around the word of God. And my children seem nowhere nearer to God than they would be if they went to any terrible public school. Right? Well, it's vain to serve God. I had prayed and purposed to have children, and he he gave me a special needs child. It's vain to serve God. I lived to guard my children from sexual abuse. And they were corrupted from a source I would never have suspected. It's vain to serve God. I had hoped to retire with my spouse and finally have some quiet, enjoy quiet evenings together doing quiet things in the quiet. (laughs) But look what has happened. This is not what I expected. It's vain to serve God. It's not so hard for us to have the same response to God's action or inaction as these unbelieving Israelites during Malachi's time. And and what we have a tendency to forget is that God gives certain guarantees to his children. He guarantees certain things to his children. Those guarantees do not jive with the American dream or the prosperity gospel or even with what we think would be fair and equitable. Right? God the Father is not a pushover father. He is a father. He is not an absent father. He's a father who's actively engaged in the lives of his children. Right? He first of all created each of us from our mother's wombs. He gave his son to redeem us from the sin with which we were born He put the spirit within us to teach us all wisdom. And he promises all along our lives to love us. And what does that love look like? What does that love look like? Well, for many of us, we would say it should look like no diseases and no financial struggles and no failures in our witness, no church problems, no church 
um, shrinkage, no unbelieving children, no pain, no abuse, no being sinned against, no discomfort. And when God has met all those requirements, we'd say, oh, it's not vain to serve God. It's actually rather wonderful. My bank account's full. My joints work. I'm six foot four, handsome. But God has a purpose in not giving you what you think is equitable. He does not give you hell, even though you've earned it over and over and over again. His holiness demands that punishment, and the only thing that rescues you from that punishment is the value of his overwhelmingly gracious gift of his crucified and risen son. I know that you say, but, but shouldn't my life be lived on a flowery bed of ease now that I know Jesus and, and indeed work very hard to serve him? And I pursue him and I read about him and I pray to him and I work for him. Why hasn't he smoothed things out for me? When did Jesus ever lie to you about what kind of life you would have if you followed him? You know what he said, right? He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What saint have you ever read about whose life was not filled with crosses? What biography of a, of a Christian saint have you read that wasn't filled with crosses you don't think you could bear? You won't read one. Certainly the apostles were crushed under the weight of the crosses as they suffered and then died martyrs' deaths. Men like Judson and Calvin and Edwards took up the cross of hard ministry and essentially poverty in order to serve God. All men through all time have suffered from diseases and illnesses and pain. Everyone has those crosses. But dear brothers and sisters, you are members of God's household. He has particularly set his sweet affection on you. And do you know what that means? Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, says scripture. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Scourges them. So dear Christians, you can respond to all your crosses and difficulties like the Israelites of Malachi's time. It's vain to serve God. It's vain. Or you can come to understand the attention that God will give you as you come to serve him. He's not a sugar daddy. Right? He is a father. He is a father, and like a good father, he disciplines us for our good. And don't forget this, like a holy father, he disciplines us so that, so that why? Why does he discipline us as fathers, as a father? So that we might share His holiness. I mean, that's astonishing. He disciplines us so that we might share his holiness. And all of this discipline will have that goal. Unless you decide, like the Israelites, that it is a cosmic downer to serve God. 
It all has this goal, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God is shaping you in such a way that you can witness for seven years and never see a convert and yet continue in your amazing love and thankfulness to him. God is shaping you in such a way that you can receive the diagnosis and say, God be praised. This is going to be some fun sanctification over the next two years. He wants me holy. God is shaping you in such a way that your whole life can go down a different path than the one you expected. And you can remain a believer deeply in love with Jesus Christ who has rescued you from all your sins which are so many, right? Do not be like those who see no difference between those who serve God and those who don't. Do not make the mistake of so many evangelicals today that those who serve God will have lives of ever-increasing ease and wealth. Do not make the mistake of thinking that it is a blessing that the wicked prosper and believers are left to struggle through this fallen world. The wicked will flourish. The wicked will flourish. That's the only time I'm ever going to use that word um, genuinely. The wicked will flourish. The godly will be disciplined so that they may share God's holiness. John Owen, reflecting on the verse that teaches us that God disciplines us as a father who desires for us to share in his holiness, he makes this observation. He says, no man can understand the benefit of divine chastisement who understands not the excellency of a participation of God's holiness. And then he says this, no man can find any good in a bitter potion who understands not the benefit of health. Right? You see that no one understands chastisement who doesn't understand the goal of God's holiness and just the actuality of God's utter holiness. And not only does that person not think correctly about God's chastisements, but it will inevitably lead him to think this thought. It is vain to serve God. He'll look about him in this world. We'll see suffering will we'll fear his own death, will see everyone around him die and conclude, well, it's vain to serve God. Didn't help out any of these people. What good has service to God ever done any man? On the surface, the answers may very well look like, well, it has done no good, in fact. Faith in Christ has only led that man from suffering to suffering. But that child of God who has gone from suffering to suffering will rejoice knowing that her father in heaven has been disciplining her for a purpose. That she might be holy, that she might be like her father in heaven. So you will respond to your sufferings in one of two ways. Like the unbelievers around Malachi, it's vain to serve God. What a waste. Or like Job, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay me, though he scourge me to the point of death, I'm going to hope in him. I will serve him. I will make my complaint to him. I will take my prayers to him. I will serve him. And so make... 
May the Lord give you eyes to see that it is not vanity to serve him. And that though your life may not be as you imagined it, it's much better to be made conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and no suffering than it is to think that it's vain to serve God.